We're going to be in Romans chapter 7 this morning. Romans chapter 7. We finished up with Romans 6 last week, but I will say this. The, uh, the, the argument of the Apostle Paul continues. He is still presenting a, a, a theme, a flow. And though we've moved chapter headings, we haven't changed uh, from the focus that he is presenting for us. He said in chapter 6, verse 11, So you, believer, must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. And just so we remember this, in the original manuscripts, as God's word was given and, uh, and put together, there were no chapter divisions. Okay, so sometimes when we're studying, we, we, we break it apart and we finish chapter 6 and we think, okay, there's a break there. But in the original text, that's just one flow to the next. We give points of reference for study and, and, uh, and finding different verses and things, but uh, this is one line of thought that's continuing for Paul for our benefit here. So it, there is a, a building out now of this verse. He wants to, to build out and, as it were, illustrate what it looks like and another way to consider what it means to be dead to sin and alive to Christ. Okay, so chapter 7, verses 1 through 13, I titled this, The Law of God and the Rebel Heart. The Law of God and the Rebel Heart. We're going to do two weeks in chapter 7, the first half this week and the second half next week as we consider um, our sin as those who are saved and the war that rages for believers against the old man, the the old inclination of the sinful heart uh, that must be put down. So the law of God and the rebel heart, let's just begin with verses 1 through 6. I titled this, Death Brings Freedom from the Law. Now, remember when you read that, remember all that we've already covered. The nature of that freedom is not a freedom to do whatever I want. It is not a freedom to disobey or disregard the law. It is a freedom to joyfully, wholeheartedly embrace God's best. So we are set free to God to serve as his happy-hearted slaves. Those who have been wonderfully released from the, the, the slave master of sin and then brought into this wonderful blessing of freedom as the happy servants and slaves of Jesus Christ. That is the nature of this freedom. And so we're going to build this out as we move through these verses. Let's start here with uh, an illustration from marriage. Paul says, Or do you not know, brothers? For I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. Now, this is the main point that he's going to build out here. If you're alive, you're bound by the law. But if you're dead, you're not. Okay, so he illustrates for a married woman is bound by the law by law to her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Okay, he goes on. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law. And if she marries another, she is not an adulteress. Okay. Now, sometimes people take these verses and they run with them to places I just don't think Paul is intending for us to go. Don't worry here if, if you're 
trying to f- parse out all of this divorce and remarriage. Is remarriage always wrong? Can you, can you remarry if, you're, if you're the, the, the person you were previously married to is still alive? Here, I, I think the answer is yes, clearly, but not from this passage so much, from the other passages that have a lot more purposed teaching on divorce and remarriage. That's not what Paul is doing here. Paul is illustrating with something that was known and practiced. Here's the point that Paul is making. It is the illustration of marriage, and it has everything to do with the vow that you enter into when you're married. We always say in the ceremonies that I conduct, till death do us part. I've never done a wedding where in the ceremony the vow said, beyond death, I covenant to be yours eternally so even after i'm dead that would just be weird okay so we don't do that the law is binding paul saying on a person only as long as he lives think of how weird it would be to 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 prosecute a dead man okay well this man robbed a bank and then he died and so we're going to prosecute him well where's the where's the defendant well he's he's in the grave the point is, is when you're dead, the law does not meet you in the same way. Death breaks that, uh, that connection with law. So too, Paul is saying in this situation, look at, listen to how he applies this to our lives. Likewise, my brothers, you have also died, you have also died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another To him, that's Jesus Christ, who has been raised from the dead in order that we may bear fruit for God. So his whole point is to build out this illustration. But listen to how he kind of changes it here. The law didn't die. It's not the law that died. We died. We died with Christ by faith. So, Our former spouse, our former husband, collectively here, was the law. We were married to the law. And then by the grace of God, in the saving gospel of Jesus Christ, we were made alive with Christ. And we we have trusted in Him. We have turned our back uh, on the law because in that exchange, we died to the law. And we have been made alive in Christ. So now we have a new husband. We believers have a new husband. We are called the bride of Christ. Think of that. The church is the bride of Christ. There is a marriage that is going to be celebrated in the book of Revelation, right? So we we, we commented the other night at our Revelation study, your Bible begins with a wedding, Adam and Eve. And it finishes with a wedding reception, the marriage supper of the Lamb. And the groom is Jesus Christ, and the bride is all those who by faith have trusted Him as Savior and Lord. We have a new husband. His name is Jesus. We were married to the law, but no longer are we married to the law. We're not bound by the law because we died. We are now married to Christ. That is His emphasis. That is His point. We owe allegiance to Jesus Christ from the heart. The law no longer holds us in the same way that it once held us. Hmm. 
Likewise, my brothers, you have also died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead. Look at this, though. In order that we may bear fruit for God. Okay, and you remember the the conversation about fruit? Remember the fruit you were bearing when you were married to the law? It was was death. Sin and death. That's That's what it led to there. But now with Christ, you're called to bear fruit to the glory of God. Bearing fruit for God. Believer, there is a purpose, an aim, a goal for your salvation. And it doesn't just begin when you die physically and meet Jesus face to face. It begins the very moment you are saved. That goal is that you bear fruit for God, for His glory, that you echo forth the excellencies of the one who has saved you and that's demonstrated in the hands of love, the feet that carry the gospel, and the mind that sharpens to delight in God above all else, and the heart that feels the the echo of God's heart day by day. Good deeds. Tom Schreiner says it this way, the gospel makes us new people, so we want to obey from the heart. All of a sudden, our, our heart has changed. When we understand the gospel, we don't obey to get God's approval. We don't simply obey because it's our duty. We obey because we love God and He is the treasure of our hearts. It is a radical change that is accomplished. Our obedience, our fruit bearing, the works that we do now are no longer to try to appease God or to try to prove ourselves to this this law. All of a sudden, it's an overflow of joy and gratitude and thanksgiving. It says, Lord, use me. Work through me. Shine your glory in me today to as many people as I can contact. While we were still living in the flesh, Paul says, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death, right? But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit. He's contrasting, once again, the fruit of living for sin, it's death, and the deeds of death, darkness, deeds of the flesh. Not so for the Christian now. We're called to live in the Spirit and bear fruit, not in the old way of the written code. This is such an important thing for believers to to grasp. This is the daily battle. This is the daily difference maker in our lives. Don't fall into the old way of life. You have a new husband. You are to live for him, to please him, to delight in him and follow his lead. John Bunyan said it this way. This is a great little little poem. Run, John, run, the law commands, but gives us neither feet nor hands. Far better news the gospel brings. It bids us fly and gives us wings. You see the difference here? The law cannot save. The law cannot make a new heart. The law can reveal all kinds of things, and there's a purpose. The law is good. We're going to examine that more closely soon, but but the law was never intended to be the way of salvation. The law of God is given for the purpose of 
establishing the need for salvation among those whose hearts rebel against it with all their might. The gospel is far better news. God calls us to obedience and then moves our hearts to do so. Augustine said it this way, Lord, command what you will and grant what you command. I love that quote. Command what you will and then grant what you command. If all you do is command, we are dead men and women. We have no chance to obey, to, to stand up to this law. We, we will rail against it left to ourselves. So the gospel is the second part of that. He grants sovereignly, savingly for new hearts to embrace Jesus as Lord and Savior and delight in obedience. He writes the law in our hearts and causes us to walk in Him. Now, the law and the unbeliever. It is interesting to see the contrast here between the gospel and the law. And Paul identifies this. He's, he's, he's dialing in pretty heavy here on the law. And so he hears that objector. He's heard it, I'm sure, countless times. The guy in the back that raises his hand and says, Paul, brother, hold on. You're downing on the law. You can't do that, right? What, what, are you, what are you, we live for this law. Aren't you a Jew, Paul? Don't you love the law? How can you be so, so, so down on the law? Well, that's not what he's doing. These verses will unfold that. Let's jump in here. Number one, four, four things in these verses that jump out. The law reveals sin. The law reveals our sin. Verses 7 and 8a. What then shall we say? That the law is sin? You hear that? That objector? Paul, are you saying that the law is sinful? That it's the law's fault? That we are the way we are? Here comes again. There are more meganoitos in Romans than I ever realized. Think of this. Here it is again. It's the strongest way to disagree with this assertion. By no means. May it never be said that the law of God is sinful or evil or in any way corrupt or anything less than holy and good. He goes on to say this, though. Look at the function of the law in the unbeliever's life. Yet, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it, what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. Okay? Now, there's a few things that he's not saying here. Number one, Paul is not suggesting that people who don't uh, have any exposure to the law of God are good to go. Th that's not the case. We are sinners from conception to the grave, left to ourselves. We sin willfully, joyfully. We are slaves of sin. We are rebels at heart. And you don't need any law for that to be true of you. It was certainly true of, of Paul. But when all of a sudden you read the law, you begin to identify it. That's what it is. 
That's what's wrong with this scenario. I mean, think of this. There are cultures, godless cultures around the world to this day that have had very little exposure to the, the word of God, to the, the, the revelation of God in his word. And normative functions in these cultures of horrific proportion. Sin, mistreatment of people, just general rudeness and, and, and impatience and anger and violence and murder. Now, Romans 1 tells us that every single time a sin is committed, in, even in godless cultures that have no exposure to the word of God, there is a law written on their hearts and their consciences condemn them, but they suppress that. They push it down. But you can live in a, in a place that just kind of, it's, it's just widely accepted. I remember Visar telling me some stories of his childhood growing up stealing and how that's just what you do. And how when his parents found out that he had been stealing from this company and, and then selling things that he had stole, stolen to, to, to make profit, his parents were like, oh, great job. That's awesome. And I just, it hits my ears like, that's inconceivable to hear from parents. But, but that is, that's possible to be there. And then all of a sudden, he said, when God began to work in his heart and the gospel met him and he began to see the call of God, what is holy and good and true, he was so convicted of those sins. He went to make that right. Went to the businesses and said, this is what I did. I'm so sorry. What can I do to make it right? You see what the function is? Is the law bad in that? No, the law is good. But it reveals in us what is not. It points it out like a spotlight. Is God's law bad or evil? Paul answers resoundingly, no. It's not bad. It's not evil. It's not causing us to sin. God's law is good and holy. He's going to echo that in verse 12. We have in us the image of God. We carry that with us. We have the law of God, as it were, written on our hearts. We know instinctively some of these things that are right and wrong. And as the character of God is revealed in his word, and the commandments of God are, are meeting us, increasingly we begin to understand the contrast between our inclination and what is good, and true, and pure, and holy, and righteous. This is good for God to do for us. It's not bad, but it can have disastrous effects in our hearts left to ourselves. I was thinking about this. We, uh, we have hardwood floors at our home, <laughs> and... and uh, one of my jobs that I love to do is vacuum, and I, I, it's kind of fun. I tag team it. We've got this robot vacuum, and he does some things really well. But, but So I, I, I get him started, and then I get the other vacuum, and we're racing around and getting everything. And I feel pretty good about the floor when I'm done. And then the afternoon sun comes at just that right angle. Have you had this experience? You're like, hey, I'm not that bad. These floors are clean. And that sun comes down and you're like, good night. It looks like I didn't even vacuum at all. Where's all that dog hair coming from? Love that dog. <laughs> 
just messes up my floors. The reality is that there is no amount of vacuuming that you can do to solve the dirt on the floors of your heart. You can vacuum your entire life and the law of God like the sun in the evening sky will shine in the windows and light up all kinds of problems. That is what the law does. That is the role, the purpose of the law. Like the sun, it meets us in our hearts and it shows all of the things that are out of order, things out of place, things that are dark and sinful and ugly and wrong. We can't solve this on our own. We can't. Number two, the law energizes sin. So number one, the law reveals sin. Secondly, the law energizes sin. It energizes it. It it stirs it up. Verses 8b through 9. Likewise, my brothers, you have also died to the law through the body of Christ that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit. For while we were living in the flesh of our sinful passions, um, for while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law or awakened by the law, they were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. There's a stirring up, an energizing function that the law does in the heart of an unbeliever. And we experience this. We know this. A 10,000 ways we have experienced this and witnessed this in our own lives. We have rebel hearts. And yet we think we're free. We think that the freedom that we should be inclined to is I do whatever I want. I don't like laws. I want to do as I please. And then we're confronted by a law. And we ask, what is the condition of my heart when that law confronts my heart? How do I respond to that? Here is a cedar chest that my grandparents gave to my mom when she, I think it was when she graduated uh, high school or turned 16 or something like that. And I, I just love this thing because it brings back all these memories. It's, it's quite old, and this isn't the actual one, but it had the same cool little wheels, and we used to roll it around. And, and I'm, I might have mentioned this recently, but uh, the one that we had was completely flat, just beautiful on the top. And I enjoyed using it as an aircraft carrier for my little metal jets. And I would land these jets and line them all up. And, and I remember my mom just walking past. It was so, like, in passing. It blew my mind. She said, Jeremy, I don't mind you doing that. Just don't crash your jets into the cedar chest or poke any holes. Bing! <laughs> Law was laid down. I had never even thought of that. It had never crossed my mind. But as soon as she said it, that's all I could think about. I'm just like, that is genius. This this battle could be so much more epic if there was actual damage. And as just a little guy, up goes the F-16, and then boom! And the first hole was poked in the leather. It had just been resurfaced. And about 30 minutes of that, I had poked holes through the entire top of that thing. 
And my mom happened to be walking by again and was just like, sin. There it is. Yep, my middle child is a sinner. A rebel heart. I think it was one of those moments where she called my dad and said, please come home quick. Please. What is it about that, right? You kids can, can, can play in the backyard, but, but don't crawl under the fence and go into the back pasture. All of a sudden we're like, well, we could do, we could do that, couldn't we? I mean, there's enough space for it. Can you fit through there? You see, it's just, we are rebels at heart, and that's sin. It's, it's, it, was it my mom's fault that I poked holes in the cedar chest? Absolutely not. She simply laid down the law. That was a good command. That was wise and helpful of her to draw a boundary for my aircraft carrier. I was the one whose heart rebelled and had to do it. Or let's take this one, for example. These are beautiful. These, these markers, right? You kids, you guys know these? Who has, you, you kids, you guys have any of these markers? Okay. Now listen close. Okay, I see you smart. You're giggling back there. Mom walks by and says, okay, you kids, you guys have lots of fun with these markers, but whatever you do, don't write on the walls or each other. Okay? And all of a sudden, you've been there, haven't you? All of a sudden, oh, that's a law. But wouldn't it be fun to break that? And then you end up with this, right? It's just like, We've all been there. You did it with a permanent marker? Oh, man. The nature of the law is that it reveals our rebel hearts. Our sin is, is not just revealed. It is stirred up by the law. When God draws the line in the sand and says, this is holy and good, and this is not. Don't step over this line. What is it about us in our rebellious instinct that just has to put a toe or just one foot over the line? That is not the fault of the law. That is ours to own fully as rebels and lawbreakers. Transgression is another word for sin. It's an act that goes against the law. Something that you do or say or, or, uh, or in, in, in Bible terms, you can even think in this sense, right? A desire that would be sinful that is then acted upon. Another word that is used sometimes is trespass or a trespass, our trespasses, sins and trespasses. It means to cross over an established boundary. That's exactly what those sins are. The law says, this is wrong. And we say, but it sure would be fun, wouldn't it? How wrong can it be? And we, we try our best to see as far as we can go and wonder if there's any consequence for our sins, transgressions, and trespasses. The answer is, friends, death. That's what Paul's saying. Sin brings the fruit of death. It kills and destroys. In fact, he builds that out here. Point number three, the law crushes us in our sin. The law, in its 
perfection and holiness serves the function of, of crushing us in our sin. Verses 10 and 11. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. The law, Paul is saying, totally destroyed me. Conviction and condemnation. One of the functions of the Holy Spirit around the world today is to convict of sin, righteousness, and judgment. The Holy Spirit does this. So he moves, and in connection with the testimony or the law, the, the holiness of God, the, the, the moral purity of God, all that he is, both that is written on our hearts instinctually, that is informed by our conscience through the conviction of the Holy Spirit and the written word, the Spirit of God lands heavy and shows truly how utterly demolished we are in our sins. We need this to be more clear than ever in our day. There was a day in this country even where this was proclaimed and even widely known. It, the, the word of God, the law of God was revered more. But we live in an increasing day where this is just, it's not known. Our gospel must convict of sin and righteousness and judgment, accountability for sin before a holy God. The good news, as we saw last week, well, it, it has to have some bad news in order for us to truly understand how, how good it is. Holy, 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 Isaiah experienced. This God enthroned in Isaiah 6, this, this incredible interaction with the God of all the universe. The thresholds were shaking as the seraphim would, would throw these words, holy, 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 back and forth. And what is John's response? Or Isaiah's response? Woe is me, I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips. What's he saying? I'm a sinner. I am unworthy. I am condemned in my sins. This holy God rightly could utterly destroy me. Righteously so. And God sends the angel over to touch his lips with the coal and atone for his sins. What an amazing thing. Even in Isaiah, in anticipation of the gospel, of Jesus Christ. Atonement is necessary for sinners to be in the presence of a holy God. Paul says in the second letter to the Corinthians, he said that this was a short, concise statement of this passage. The letter kills. It kills. The letter kills. But the Spirit gives life. If all you have is the letter, you're doomed. <laughs> you are doomed. The letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. They function in tandem. They come together. There is a good 
and right purpose for the law of God in this world among the godless and the lawbreakers. Hmm. So the law reveals sin. The law energizes sin. The law crushes us in our sin. And number four, the law proves the sinfulness of sin. The law proves the sinfulness of sin. Verses 12 and 13. So, Paul says, the law is holy. And the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Did that which is good then bring death to me? Meganoito. Don't ever say that. Don't ever even think that. No, absolutely not. It was not the law's fault that I died, that I was condemned. It was sin. Sin that produced death in me. The rebel heart, the instinct was mine to rebel against God's righteous and holy law. It produced death in me through what is good in order that sin, to show that sin would be displayed for the sin that it is, to to reveal it for the the, the horrific darkness and, and rebellion that sin is. And through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. You know, one of the greatest problems with the unbelieving heart is the failure to rightly assess how serious sin is before the eyes of God. Oh, but God is love. God is kind and gentle. He's gracious. Oh, he, of course there's no hell. He can't be angry. He's God. He's supposed to be good and kind and loving. Right? All justifying behavior that God hates to His core. God is kind and good, and that's one of the reasons that He is angry at our sin. And He is just and holy. The sinfulness of sin is a real category. In fact, the Puritans did a great job on this topic. I'm trying to remember who who wrote on this. I think it may have been John Owen or one of those guys. An entire dissertation on the sinfulness of sin. How, How good it would be for us to feel that, even as believers. How serious is my sin? How serious does God take my sin? Answer? Look at the cross. If you ever doubt that sin is a big deal to God, ask, why the cross? Why the, the, the weight of, of, of our sins required such a violent payment and death? Left to ourselves, we stand guilty before God and we have only ourselves to blame. We can't blame the law. Oh, the instinct is there. Adam in the garden. Well, it was the, it was the woman, by the way, that, that, that you made. It was her fault, right? Just pass the blame. Throw everyone else. Oh, the victim instinct is not new, friends. It is gaining popularity like crazy in our day. But that is age old, going all the way back to the very beginning. It's not my fault, God. It's your fault. It's your law that made me the rebel that I am. Not true. Not true. 
the law, it shone like a light on the darkness of my rebel heart. Is it unloving for God to do this? Is it unkind for God to employ His holy and righteous and good law to totally dismantle any notion of self-righteousness for the unbeliever? It is the kindest thing that God can do for delusional sinners that think of themselves as good. To break down the the, the, the house of cards that we build to somehow think that we could earn God's favor. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped. This is Romans 3. We've, we've looked at that, but look at how it ties in. Look at the consistency here of, of thought in Romans. The law speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. Not one. Not one person in the history of mankind that is a sinner has ever made himself just or meritorious of God's favor by works of the law. And here comes the function of the law. Since through the law comes knowledge of sin. It is the law that shows us the holiness of God. It is the law that shows us the radiant purity and truth and beauty of God. And when that light shines by the grace of God, it reveals our desperate, desperate, hopeless, if left to ourselves, need for a Savior. And yet, today, around the world, religion works so hard to try to earn God's favor, to try to prove that we are not that bad. We're good people. We do lots of good things. We deserve favor from God. We will appease Him. Wrong. It's right there, just plain as can be. Wrong. That's not the good news of the gospel. Our response this morning, we were hanging out with some people on Friday night and just was struck as I tracked the conversations through the evening how much we all are longing right now for clarity and truth. Just, you know, I don't want a narrative. I'm not interested in what you were told to say so that you could get a bonus at the end of the week, right? I'm, I'm not looking for the narrative. I, am, I need objective truth. I want my doctor to tell me the truth, even if it costs him. I, I need politicians to start talking about what's right and true rather than how to spin it and employ the story for their own political gain. It is in this world that we find ourselves with this spectacular revelation of God. It is so refreshing to come into the presence of God and know God is not a spin master. He is not dancing around and trying to tickle our ears and tell us what we want to hear. 
he speaks truthfully. Every word of God proves true from cover to cover. How refreshing it is. So, oh, friends, the law of God meets us with great clarity and truth, and that's exactly what we need in our day. That is our role in this increasingly godless world. Speak with clarity what is objectively true, revealed authoritatively in the Word of God. It'll stand out. It'll stand out. But remember, left to ourselves, what did we do when we heard that? Our instinct on our own? Shut up with that. I don't want to hear that. Don't bring that garbage in here. What are you talking about? I don't, I don't like that. Stiff arm. That's what we do. That's what instinctively sinners around the world did. Unless God does something in addition to it. Supernatural. To overcome that instinct of a sinful rebel heart. And save. In the power of Christ. The holy law of God is not all we have, friends. We also have the loving grace of God, and so we pray, Lord, use me as I speak, as I share, as I shine. Use me in such a way that your word and your truth will come from me boldly, but also with love and land on ears that by your Holy Spirit supernaturally will, will receive these words. And Run to Jesus Christ as Savior. I'm going to close with this verse from Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 and 14. Believers, you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made, God does this, God does, God saves, God made alive together with Christ, having forgiven us. Oh, glory be. Think of this. He has forgiven us all our trespasses. How did he do it? By just being kind and benevolent and, oh, it's okay, you sinners, you, you rebels. I'm just going to look the other way. I just, I'm just such a nice guy. I'm just going to bring you all in and it's all going to be okay. No, that's not what he did when he saved us. He took all our trespasses and he, he brought it and canceled the record of that debt that stood against us with its legal demands, right? This he set aside, how did he do it? By nailing it to the cross of Christ. He placed his own son, sinless and holy, on that cross, and then he poured wrath on him that we deserve. And Jesus drank the entire cup all the, all the way to the last drop out of love for rebels like you and me. But that's the gospel. That we could be forgiven. The likes of us. The rebels. The lawbreakers. The haters of God. It is glorious. And it is true, friends. If you're here today, and your assessment of your life is that you are living your life against the law of God. You are 
rebelling against him. You are living in sin, living as one married to the law, just running the other direction from God. Living in condemnation. I have good news for you today. There's a Savior. And He saves people just like that. That's where all of us in this room once were. Absolutely undeserving of that grace. And that's exactly where God runs and says, let me show you my son. Let me show you what he did for you. So this morning, turn to him. Run to Jesus Christ. Embrace Jesus as your only hope for salvation. You can never earn the salvation that God has for you by working for it. Just trust Jesus. Trust him alone. Turn from your sins and you will be saved. Let's pray. Oh God, we delight in your revelation of yourself, your character, all that you are is holy and good and true. We delight in your commandments that echo forth that reality. All that you have put forward is good and true and right, and yet our instinct is to hate it and rebel against it. Lord, thank you for hearts now to delight in it and to embrace you as the greatest good and the greatest treasure. Father, I thank you for sending your son Jesus to save sinners like me, rebels like me who have hearts inclined instinctually to break the law, to disobey, to rail against you. And yet, even still, you loved me. And you met me with supernatural work to turn my gaze to Christ and save me from my sins. Oh Lord, bring that that work we pray supernaturally here upon any in this place who are not yet trusting Jesus as Savior and Lord. And then teach us what it means to delight to do your will, to be free and love your law, to to want to, to be like you through and through. Make us like Jesus, we pray, and use us to shine in this dark world. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.